Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 51. So I was sitting in my cubicle today and I realized ever since I started working, um, Every single day of my life has been worse than the day before it. So that means that every single day that you see me, that's on the worst day of my life. What about today? Is today the worst day of your life? Yeah. Wow, that's messed up. (laughs) That is a scene from the movie Office Space, in which our hero, Peter Gibbons, is visiting an occupational hypnotherapist to hopefully help him not hate his job so much. And in the movie, Peter is a programmer at Inatech, and his work life is a world of cubicles and bosses and office politics and corporate minutia that is overwhelmingly, soul-suckingly awful. Hello, Peter. What's happening? Uh, we have sort of a problem here. Yeah, you apparently didn't put one of the new cover sheets on your TPS reports. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry about that. I... I forgot. Mm, yeah. You see, we're putting the cover sheets on all TPS reports now before they go out. Did you see the memo about this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I have the memo right here. I just uh, forgot. But uh, it's not shipping out till tomorrow, so there's no problem. Yeah. If you could just go ahead and make sure you do that from now on, that would be great. And, uh... I'll go ahead and make sure you get another copy of that memo. Okay? Yeah, no, I, I, I have the memo. I've got it. It's right. Hello, Bill. <laughs> so Office Space came out in 1999, and since then it has become a sort of shorthand, an inside joke. It's a go-to reference sheet for all the sorts of things that generally suck about work. In fact, even the movie's tagline on the poster was, work sucks, and that was like in the commercials and the trailers for it. And I don't know about you, but I grew up in a culture that saw work as a necessary sin. Most of my family, they worked blue collar jobs and therefore they had no problem with work life balance. You got off work and you did not think about it until the next morning. And on Sundays you dreaded the idea of Monday. You dreaded the very, the very concept of what Monday meant and the work ahead of you and the week ahead of you. And I spent time in that world myself. My first Jobs were all construction jobs because my dad was an electrical engineer. So I worked on his crews and we dug ditches and pulled cable and we basically we died in the sun every day. And I I remember one job site. It was the middle of July and the ground was as hard as stone and it was completely unyielding to our shovels. So we actually took out drills and made holes in the dirt along the path that the underground cable needed to be laid. And then we poured our drinking water into the holes until we made mud and then we tried digging it. And of course that didn't work at all. (laughs) So that's what that world is like. And you expect it to be terrible. And, but I've also spent many years in the white collar world too, more years now than I did digging ditches and waiting tables in college and all that sort of stuff. 
And I can say from my experience in the white collar world, that so much of what office space parodied is absolutely true and still true. Despite the fact that it came out in 1999, cubicle farms are still just as potentially soul sucking and managers are still just as potentially managerial corporate is still weirdly corporate almost everywhere. Not, not everywhere, but in many places enough that almost everyone I know, probably everyone, you know, probably you have these stories that seem to line up really well with what Mike judge was making fun of what he was writing about when he wrote that movie. I have eight different bosses right now. A big pardon? Eight bosses. Eight? Eight, Bob. So that means that when I make a mistake, I have eight different people coming by to tell me about it. That's my only real motivation is not to be hassled. That and the fear of losing my job. But you know, Bob, that'll only make someone work just hard enough not to get fired. Would you bear with me? But this episode is going to be all about how it doesn't have to be that way. Just because this is largely true in many places. It doesn't mean it has to be the way it is. In fact, some psychologists, especially occupational psychologists, they refer to the ideas that inform the cultures of so many companies, big and small, as being folklore. In other words, the way things are done are often based on tradition. That's just the way things have always been done. And they, they worked well enough then that, you know, that's how we kept doing it. And now that's the way we do it. And your boss, you know, has an office and you don't. And if you work hard enough and sacrifice enough free time to the company, maybe you'll get an office and then you can go golfing with your regional manager and spend your time evaluating employees and filling out paperwork, describing to the corporate vice presidents, how people are doing the things that you used to do. There's a system in place wherever you work. And most people just assume that's how things are done. Those methods and practices and policies were vetted by someone at some point Or if those things are crappy and soul-sucking, it's simply because there's no real non-crappy, non-soul-sucking alternative. But once you start exploring the world of psychology, the, the world that we talk about on this show, you'll realize that workplaces around the world are chock full of thriving cognitive biases and logical fallacies and behavior altering happiness, dampening heuristics. And if you don't have a system for testing new ideas, for pointing out flaws, for altering the mindset of people up and down the hierarchy or doing away with that hierarchy or altering that hierarchy, if you don't have some way of applying new discoveries from behavioral science, then a work environment can remain static and clunky and generally make people feel like they are grinding for retirement and watching the clock, exchanging time and effort solely for tokens instead of fulfillment or experience or growth or feeling like they've accomplished something or made a contribution to something important. We've asked several guests on the past shows and past episodes who have discussed things like this. Why aren't businesses and institutions applying the stuff we're talking about? And not just the stuff that you are not so smart explorers, but from other resources, books like predictably irrational and thinking fast and slow and nudge and drive and the zillions of studies that inform those kinds of books, it's all out there. So why is it, it being applied? Well, I'm happy to say that in some places it is, and has been for a while. And one of those places, perhaps the place doing it the most and in the best way possible is Google. Google calls their HR department 
people operations, and it's a huge part of what Google does, examining, studying, testing, iterating, and applying scientific research to the work environment to see what does and does not work, and then changing things based on what they've learned. It's completely data-driven and evidence-based, and in many ways, their work extends the work of scientists studying a particular behavior or bias or cultural phenomenon by testing different approaches and policies among thousands of employees. And, you know, they have their own culture at Google, and maybe that's not the same culture that will work in every kind of business. But at Google, it doesn't just emerge from a bunch of random processes. It is something that is done with a purpose. It is something that is, they've actually, they're actually trying to create it. And so all of this stuff that they do has kind of been behind closed doors and hidden from public view until now, because Google's head of people operations, Laszlo Bach, has written a book all about how the company has done what they've done over the years and what they've learned from it and how it can be applied in your business or in other institutions. And I started this episode with a scene from Office Space because Bach brings up in the book that that very scene and this, the scene about making how work is uh, work makes every new day of Peter Gibbons life the worst one so far. And Bach goes into detail about how Google basically went through everything that that movie parodies and asked how could they eliminate it from their company. And the insane thing is they pretty much did. My name is David McCraney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And in this episode, we're talking about work and you will hear Laszlo Bach, head of people operations at Google, explain what Google is doing differently, what they've learned, what he put in that book and how they've changed course many times based on what the evidence suggests and how they got that evidence in the first place and why they sought that evidence. You hear all of that in the interview after this break. I am such a big fan of the great courses. I love the whole idea of the great courses, which is take a leading professor, a leading thinker, a famous scientist, a person who knows what they're talking about and have that person deliver a series of lectures on a very specific topic and make it so it's really easy to enjoy and understand it. You get a book that goes along with it that tells you all about what the person's talking about so that you can understand it more deeply and you can either watch it on a DVD, listen to it on a CD, get it as a digital download on your computer, on your smartphone, every one of these is well done, way better than a YouTube video, and they're all very cool. And right now, I've been enjoying the Great Courses series, The Art of Critical Decision-Making, taught by award-winning professor Michael Roberto. He explains why framing choices is critical to making any decision, and he shows how indecision can paralyze us if we're inside one of those cultures that pretty much sees everything as a choice between yes, no, or Maybe. And it's a great course to go along with the subject matter of this episode, because what you get are 24 fascinating lectures that will give you the skills and techniques you need to enhance the effectiveness of the decision-making process of either just yourself, your team, or the whole company, or the whole institution for which you work and try to improve. And it's all about individuals, groups, and organizations making more effective choices. And right now you can get it for 80% off with my special code, along with a bunch of other courses all at thegreatcourses.com slash smart. That's right. You get 80% off, eight zero. And here's how you do it. 
Order today with my special offer from The Great Courses by going to thegreatcourses.com slash smart. That's thegreatcourses.com slash smart. Would you classify yourself as a geek, gamer, or a pop culture nerd? Then Loot Crate is the subscription box for you because for less than $20 a month, you get six to eight items of gamer and pop culture licensed gear, apparel, collectibles, unique one-of-a-kind items, and more. All you have to do is go to LootCrate.com slash smart and enter the code SMART to save $3 on any new subscription. You want this because every month there's a different theme and you're guaranteed at least $40 or more worth of items all curated around that theme. There are stuff that's either inspired by classic movies or video game releases, or maybe it's a pop culture franchise. Crates sometimes are are centered around ideas like Star Wars and Marvel, The Walking Dead, The Legend of Zelda, or maybe just horror in general or a post-apocalyptic fiction in general. This month, Loot Crate invites you to join the cyber revolution with an assortment of cool tech-themed collectibles from a wide array of awesome franchises. They're featuring exclusive items from Terminator Genesis, Borderlands 2, and more. I love Borderlands. I'm getting this thing here, including an exclusive t-shirt that you will not find anywhere else. Basically, Loot Crate is like a friend who knows what you love and surprises you with an awesome present every month. And, and they ship to more than 13 countries. You have until the 19th at 9 p.m. This is your deadline. The 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive this crate that we're talking about. After that, the cutoff happens. That is it. It's over. You can never get these items again. They're gone. Only the few people who are smart enough to get involved with this have that stuff. And if you want to be one of those people, go to lootcrate.com slash smart and enter the code smart to save $3 on your new subscription to Loot Crate. We return to our program. Our guest in this episode is Laszlo Bach, the Senior Vice President of People Operations for Google Incorporated, basically the head of their massive, never-been-done-before HR department that goes about trying to figure out the best way to get people, to keep people, to make people better, to get people to be happy and effective, and to just create this strange and often wonderful place known as Google, which is known as being among most people in most categories and most places that rank this kind of thing is the best company to work for in most of the countries in which they have offices. And they have 50,000 employees in 70 offices worldwide. So this HR department is massive and huge and interesting and cool. It's written a new book called Work Rules, which is all about how they've gone about making the decisions they made, how they arrived at them, all the research they did, and what you can do like what they did. Laszlo has testified before Congress on immigration reform. He's worked for General Electric and McKinsey and Company. And he's just done a lot of really interesting, cool stuff. And now that he's at Google, he's trying to apply the science of psychology and neuroscience and sociology and all the behavioral and social things that we've learned over the years in a big work environment to see what does and does not stick, what should and should not be done. And you're going to hear all about that in this interview. Let's pick his brain. 
Okay, Laszlo, uh, first of all, thank you so much for being here. And um, I think it's so cool that uh, you've put this book together, which as far as I can tell, uh, and I've read uh, a good bit of it now, uh, it seems like you've basically put together something that shows what Google has learned about the organizational and working environment behavior of human beings over the last 15 years or so. And uh, what, including what makes us happy and effective and things like that. And what I love about the book, uh, and it's something that I wish I could send a hundred copies to every place I've ever worked and, and, and hand to them and say, look, this is how <laughs> do this. Why are you not doing this? Um, but I also, I love the idea that Google is actually able to produce this kind of material. You've, you've made a tremendous effort to test everything and to learn from your mistakes and to iterate and record all of that and then use it. And now you're sharing it. Is that sort of what's going on here? That's exactly it. Yeah, it's uh, and actually, the biggest question I get often is kind of like, how did Google let you do this thing? Um, and because uh, there's a lot of pretty sensitive stuff in there, but the reality is we've we've kind of got this history of taking stuff, and if there's more good to be done, sort of by sharing it or, or giving it away, we do that. So, you know, all the books we used to scan, we sort of made publicly available, and then when Amazon launched their their Kindle, they stocked it initially with all the books that Google had scanned, which is fantastic. You know, they built a great business of it. Um, so this is in a similar vein where, you know, we have the luxury and sort of the the tendency to actually look at things, measure it, try to figure out what works and what doesn't in terms of what makes people happier and more productive. And once we actually figured a bunch of stuff out, I realized there's actually a lot of other companies doing similar things, but they don't have the resources to kind of prove that this stuff works or something is better. So maybe I could sort of talk about not just the Google experience, but also, you know, great grocery stores and textile mills and all these random other organizations that are also doing great things to try to drive home the message that no place needs to try to recreate Google, but every place could maybe be a little better. Right. So here's an important question. Um, if I were to shrink you down to the size of a nickel and drop you into a blender... <laughs> How would you uh -huh. escape? <laughs> uh, I would turn off the movie. I would go home. <laughs> I love you talk, you point out in the book that that's something that even Google used to sometimes ask potential new hires in the interview process. And it's still something that people ask, uh, maybe not so much after that movie, but um, it seems to me that it speaks to Google's general philosophy about trying and iterating toward a better way of doing things. Uh, instead of depending on folklore that you did away with this and some of the other things surrounding that, is that, is that true? Is that, is, is Google sort of rooting out folklore a lot of times? Yeah, we're, we're trying to, I mean, they, if you think about sort of how people get managed, first of all, we spend more time working than anything else, right? Uh, more than we do sleeping, more than with our loved ones, which is crazy. Um, and it's not a great experience for most people. And even at the best workplace on the planet, you still have bad days. And so the fundamental question is, why isn't it better? And it turns out that there actually isn't a lot of science, you know, to tell you how to actually manage people in a way that makes them happier. And so what I've really tried to do is figure out what can we do at Google that's generally shareable. And a lot of this are sort of common myths or just the way we naturally do things that you don't realize are actually the wrong way to do things because to each of us, they feel right. And hiring and interviewing is a great example. You know, a lot mm -hmm. of people like asking these really tricky brain teasers. And it turns out when you actually look whether answers on those kinds of questions predict performance, it doesn't. It just mainly makes the interviewer feel really clever because they know more than the candidate. <laughs> right. I always thought that might be what was, what was going on. <laughs> and 
it's really, you, you have a whole chapter about the interview process and the, the, you say, don't trust your gut. You, you, um, you say in the book that you, you, you actually write that our instincts keep us from being good interviewers. Um, what do you mean by that when it comes to not trusting your gut and, and being skeptical of your instincts? Yeah, there was very, very cool research done a number of years ago that looked at how well people make decisions when they interview. And what the researchers did was they, they had trained interviewers, two psychologists, interview candidates for 30 minutes and make an assessment on 11 attributes. And they were things like agreeableness and extroversion and uh, competence, intelligence. And then they took that video, they shot the video recording the stuff, and then they asked college sophomores to watch the video, but with the sound turned off. And they were stunned to realize the college sophomores actually made the same assessments as the trained interviewers. They thought, this is weird. So they then cut the segment in half and said, just watch 15 minutes, sound turned off, same quality of assessments. And they kept cut, slicing it thinner and thinner and thinner until they got down to a 10-second segment of the interview. No sound. And for nine of the 11 attributes, these sophomores could still predict the same outcomes as a trained interviewer. And the lesson was, what happens in an interview is you go and you meet somebody, and you know there's a phrase, you, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. In this case, you know, the, the folk wisdom is true. People make an assessment in the first 10 seconds, and the rest of the interview is an exercise in what's called confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. You're sort of looking for, am I right? You're, you're looking for evidence that suggests your initial impression was correct. Um, but that actually, that first impression is completely unrelated to how someone performs. So you actually need a different interview process where you ask people questions that actually do predict performance. Yeah, and I think that, you know, this is like a good example of something that in a lot of companies, someone reads about this in a book, they read about it, uh, they see it in a YouTube video or something, and they think that's a great factoid, and they share it at a meeting, and it doesn't really change anything because, you know, it's just like, hey, think about this the next time you're doing an interview. But what seems to be different uh, in the organization at Google is that you guys then went to the next level and tried to root this out and to come up with a better way of doing things and to do testing to to improve that process. What are some of the ways that you um, improve the interviewing process to sort of try to eliminate confirmation bias? Well, there, there's a few different things we do. And, you know, for anyone who listens to your podcast, the single biggest thing, most valuable thing you can do is whoever's doing the interviewing and especially the hiring manager, do not let them make the hiring decision. Hmm. So the biggest thing we do is, um, we all interview the candidate, and typically you get four, maybe five interviews. You meet your manager, some peers, a, couple, a subordinate, and somebody from outside your group in some combination. They write down the questions they ask, the interview feedback. Uh, sorry, they write down the questions they ask. They write down your answer and then their assessment of your answer. And then a separate hiring committee gets that right up. And the purpose of that hiring committee is purely to make sure quality stays high, that we don't compromise, that the questions are objective, that they're unbiased. And the hiring committee... They don't know if you're white or black or old or young or thin or fat. They don't know anything about you other than the answers that you gave to these questions. So we institutionalize that, and that's how all hiring works at Google. But if you're out there trying to interview or recruit on your own, the best thing you can do, write down what the interviewer said, the candidate said, give it to somebody else, let them make an assessment, and you will automatically start making better decisions. It's so cool because, um, you know, in the – you, you mentioned Daniel Kahneman a couple of times. Of course, Kahneman comes up in almost every episode of this show because he's just such a pioneer in this side of psychology. And, um, you know, he, 
he was worried about the way he graded tests and he tried to come up with a way to avoid that and to avoid the halo effect and the confirmation bias and all these other things that come in. Um, and what just kept thrilling me over and over again in, in the book was how you talk about um, Google acknowledges that and they, you take mm-hmm. a lot of what's being, uh, what has either been in a few, a few studies or has been in a couple books when it comes to social sciences. And then you use the power and the resources of Google and all of these people that are working uh, there and you do your own testing and you um, are actually advancing some of these principles and hypotheses just through the fact that you're able to take it to the real world and bring in um, actual results um, and bring in new data that can expand. Well, here's how it would work in this organization or in this situation. It's such a, um, such a fascinating and refreshing way to see how businesses do things. Was this always part of how um, Google did things or did you have to come to that um, way of, of, of working and iterating, uh, was it a decision to do things this way or was it always like this? Uh, it was a decision, but we had, we had to come to it. Uh, but there were two advantages. One was that, you know, from the beginning, Larry and Sergey actually had great instincts about this. You know, for all that I write about, you know, don't trust your gut and rely on the science. They actually had some pretty good ideas in their gut, right? So one of them was, you know, have a hiring committee, make the decisions. And, so from the beginning, that's how it worked. Um, and it turns out you actually make better decisions. And the problem they were trying to solve is when you look at organizations over time, startups in particular, they start with this core of amazing people. And then over time, you end up with a lot of average people. And, you know, you get to 1,000 or 2,000 people and look around and go, how come everyone's average? So they were actually trying to solve that problem. And they came up with a really critical part of the broader solution. Um, so we were lucky in that they already were kind of thinking about how do we make things fair and unbiased. Um, the second advantage we had was that, you know, on the on the search side, everything was data driven. Mm. You know, we always used to say, you know, don't politic, use data. And there's, you know, been famous coverage or maybe infamous coverage about all these tests we did to decide which of one, which of 41 different shades <laughs> of blue right. should appear on you right. know, an ad. Um, and so when I joined, I remember thinking we should, on the people side, be innovating and proving what we do just as much as we do on the engineering side. And so that's what we've been trying to do. Um, and in, in part, it's also, if we weren't doing this, they wouldn't believe us, right? So it's just a path <laughs> of credibility. Well, I mean, I've worked for plenty of places that just say, just believe us. And uh, mm. and I think that it's it's always one of those weird things, like I you're in the, you're in the meeting and then you walk out of the meeting and you get together with one other person. You go, Hey, I don't actually think that's how things should go. And you're like, yeah, I know, I don't know why we're doing that. And it's like, there's all this undercurrent of the employees knowing, or at least having an intuition about this is where things should be. And then not that, that information, not moving up and down the hierarchy. Um, and you've done so, so much work to try to eliminate that completely. Um, you say in the book that, well, you know, if, oh, if, yeah, if, go ahead. if I may the yeah. like underpinning what you're saying, like, you're completely right. The, and when you, when you put every one of us has had that experience, right? We've all been in meetings. We go out, we go like, uh, this doesn't make sense. And then we talk to somebody and they're like, yeah, that's what I thought too. So when I was, when I was in graduate school, uh, I had a professor whose name was Vic Vroom uh-huh. and, uh, it's a name you never forget. <laughs> and, uh, he taught us all these frameworks, which at the time totally didn't make sense. And he thought this is kind of like dumb and obvious. So there was something called the Abilene paradox. Oh uh, yeah. 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 Right. I've, I've never talked uh, about it on the show. Yeah. Talk about it. Yeah. 
Oh, nice. We're, we're blazing new ground. Um, <laughs> the, uh, well, then tell me if I get it wrong, too. So the, the way I learned it was there's basically this story of, you know, there's four guys somewhere in Texas and they, you know, they don't know what to do. They're sitting on some pork bench, park bench and, you know, it's 100 degrees outside. And one of them says, why don't we drive to Abilene? And another one goes, well, OK. The third one says, yeah, why don't we do that? And the fourth <laughs> says, sure. And they all pile in the truck and they drive, you know, eight hours and hundreds of miles they end up in Abilene. And they get there, there's, you know, nothing. And uh, they kind of look around and go like, why do we drive to Abilene? And they kind of go, I don't know. I thought you wanted to go. And the moral of the story is that often groups end up doing things that nobody really wants to do Mm -hmm. because there's an impedance. It just takes some effort to kind of say, I don't know. That's that's kind of, I don't think that's such a great idea. Maybe we're better off staying on the porch. Um, So first of all, did I get that right, roughly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And (laughs) in the... um... In the in psychology, they call it um, pluralistic ignorance. You may have heard that before. Um, that extends out into if you have a large group of people and they're all behaving a certain way and you feel like you disagree with the group, you assume that you're the only person who thinks that. But what can happen is in a, whole, a large group of people can all be thinking internally that they disagree with what's happening on the outside. And so you end up with a whole, we end up with a large group of people who think one way and do another, and they can support status quos that no one actually supports. They can support norms that no one supports. Mm-hmm. Um, an example that always made it, that made it make sense to me was you imagine a lot of people waiting to get into um, a classroom and they think everybody seems to think that the door is locked. And then one person walks, oh. just walks up and opens the door and goes inside <laughs> and everybody's like, Oh, the door yeah. was unlocked the whole time. It's just that, uh, Everyone thought that everyone else knew something that they that they didn't know. And the Abilene thing is like well, right in line with that, yeah. Well, and so coming back to your example, right, what happens in, in meetings, in, in business settings, even just in like a conversation with a boss, you've got that very natural human tendency that you're describing, and it's compounded by this very natural but insidious power dynamic that exists between managers and their people. Right, because human beings are by nature, we're I mean, we're pack animals, we're social animals, and even when there's no hierarchy, people still kind of want to know who's in charge, right? So uh-huh. you go to meetings, and the senior person always ends up in the same seat, usually at the head of the table. And actually, even what we see at Google is when the senior person, so Kent Walker, who's our general counsel, he tried to break this up, so he went from sitting at the head of the table with his team to sitting in the middle along the side, and then sure enough, three weeks later, that was the seat that was left empty, right? <laughs> so we naturally, we look for all these little tiny social cues and we're always looking for hierarchy. And so we're susceptible to all these power dynamics. And one of the things we try really hard to do at Google is how do we tear that apart? Because exactly as you say, we all have this experience of you go to a meeting, you leave it, everyone's kind of like, oh, that was a terrible idea. That should never happen. <laughs> that should never happen. That's like disaster, but that's the way the world works. Um, so we do a bunch of things to help people be more explicit. So for example, when we do the way we set performance ratings is the manager comes up with a draft rating, a temporary one, and then a group of managers sit down and do what's called for us a calibration session. So they compare notes. Salts for hard and easy graders. You get to know one another's teams, but it starts with a sheet of paper. This is super low tech sheet of paper that says here are common biases when people are assigning ratings and it's things like halo and horns effect and recency bias. Mm-hmm. And something that simple actually starts breaking down the power dynamic and some of these things that, you know, leave you driving to Abilene for who knows what reason. <laughs> um, that's, first of all, that is so tremendous and amazing to me. We, we've had, you know, we've talked to Daniel Pink and we've talked to um, 
David Dunning. And we talked to a lot of the like uh, people who have famously identified the common um, mental pratfalls and biases and fallacies and stuff that arise whenever you create organizations. And almost every one of those uh, people that we've spoken to have said, um, it's so weird that we know all this and we're not applying it. It's so weird that uh, you even, you even write in the book that it's crazy to you that businesses aren't testing and, you know, pulling out samples and doing AB testing like you do at Google. Why do you think it is that um, so many businesses aren't doing what you are now doing like at 100%, you know, uh, that you're what other businesses aren't doing it at all and you're doing it so much. What do you think is going on there? Um, I think there's two things going on. One is, you know, I was, I was once in New York talking to a group of CEOs, um, some kind of conference or event thing. And, um, I, I think top executives don't ask enough from their HR teams or whatever teams that might take an interest in this, but usually it's HR. So they, they, you know, if you're, if you're a senior leader or if you're, if you own your own company or if you have, you know, if you've got a bagel shop on the corner or what have you with six or seven employees, you have that job because you're really good at whatever the problem is, right? You're amazing as a baker or you're a great turnaround executive or whatever. There's something you're good at. You're probably not great at the people stuff, right? Or you're good, but you're not like the world expert, like a Dan Pink or some of these other folks you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And so you don't naturally turn to somebody and say, you know, why don't we try this experiment? Or, hey, have you thought about it this way? It's just not, think about it like if you're a college student, it's not your major, right? You get the big job because your major happens to be what the organization needs or you're an entrepreneur and that's what you need. And it's a bit of a blind spot. And then that's why it doesn't happen, I think, sort of why it's, those questions aren't asked more in business. But I also think there's a deeper issue, which is to, to think about this stuff, you actually need to have had some exposure to like statistics or a little bit of operations management or some way to sort of parse the world and realize it's not just stuff that happens to us, but you know, there's distributions and, you know, sometimes at the grocery store, you get in the long line and the short line, and sometimes the long line goes faster. And so <laughs> you don't have to know queuing theory, but to have some exposure to, okay, there's statistical variation. That's just random. And sometimes there's just a really slow checkout clerk. And most people don't, you know, we don't learn this stuff in school. Um, I mean, we don't even really learn, you know, average versus median and, you know, here's what a normal distribution, and unless you understand just the very fundamental concepts, which aren't super complicated. Um, it's hard, I think, to go out to the world and say, oh, I've got two different teams. Let me treat them slightly differently and see what happens. Well, speaking of to, to that, there's a, um, I'm very smitten with the story of Abraham Wald and the bombers and, um, World War II and survivorship bias and, um, I've written about it in the past. We did a show about it one time. And I, when I got to that part of the book where you mentioned it, I was very excited. I saw the pictures of the, of the, uh, heat maps. And, um, and I was like, Oh, this is awesome that they're acknowledging this and that this is something they talk about. But then, uh, you say that you actually have worked to eliminate, um, some of the effects of survivorship bias. Could you sort of, uh, take us through how you did that or, or some ways that you yeah. have messed around with it? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you an example. The um, it's funny because that that example. So, you know, one of the things when you do this kind of thing and you work for a company and you're describing the company, you actually want to be very honest in your description, right? And sort of show warts and all, because otherwise, I've got fifty five thousand people at home, you know, at at the company who've got my phone number, right? They know how to <laughs> find me and complain and tell me I'm wrong. And the only thing that has been controversial was me saying, you know, 
and we take steps to address survivorship bias. And I'd sort of tucked it away. You know, I made a comment and then I think it's, there's like a footnote and in the last line of the footnote, I say, oh, and also we work on this. And, you know, some of our employees totally zeroed in on that and we're like, wait a minute, what's going on? And we've also had this long conversation at the company about, um, so we, we have an analytics team and they're constantly looking at interesting things. And one of the things we discovered was um, the application of imposter syndrome to the company. Mm. Imposter syndrome is, you know, you think you're, you know, you're successful, but you think it's not thanks to you. It's sort of like the reverse of the fundamental attribution error, right? It's like, you know, I'm faking it. I'm going to get discovered. And it turns out lots of people feel that way. So people discover the survivorship bias thing. And then the immediate reaction is, you know, what's going on? And the next reaction is, oh, my God, we've all got imposter syndrome. We shouldn't have been hired. <laughs> right. So, okay. So it's, it's a great thing to pick up on. Uh, I'll give you one example of what we've done. Um, when it comes to recruiting, if all you're, if you come up with a way of assessing people and you think it works um, and, you know, you're able to hire high quality people and then you look at your existing employees and it seems, you know, your interview scores seem related to high performance in your company. Initially, you might conclude that, okay, our hiring process works, but the data set you're training on is only people that have actually been hired by your company. So there's a bunch of people who you might have wanted to hire that you didn't. So there's a bunch of false negatives in the system mm -hmm. that, you know, you're excluding. So one of the things we do is, and we've sort of done this, what I can talk about is for candidates right at the cusp. Um, we used to care a lot about test scores and GPAs and where you went to school and things like that, that we now know aren't predictive at all. We don't care about that stuff. Um, the, um, so we went back to candidates who were rejected because, you know, they seem like a good candidate, but they were rejected by Google because their grades weren't good enough or they went to a non-selective school or something. And then we went back and hired a bunch of those people. Um, and a bunch is not thousands and thousands, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we did it in a double-blind way where the teams they went on didn't know that they were getting people who'd been rejected. And the people who were rejected, we caught them before they got the rejection letter, right? So we see in the system, you know, they're going to get rejected. Wait a minute, let's take a look. Um, so the people didn't know. And what we found was they perform just as well as the other people we were hiring. So we then used that to say, aha, uh -huh, maybe we shouldn't focus so much on this academic thing. We should focus on some other things. Um, and we've done a few different variations of that. Um, we have not done like the pure, completely scientifically accurate way, which would be, let's just hire a thousand people at random and see how they do. Because right. um, there's a big cost to that. But we've been using it to sort of widen the aperture and, and you know, reduce the rate of false negatives. So, so impressive. Um, you know, I, I, there's one of my favorite examples of, like an organization um, becoming sad and not getting, and everyone becoming, uh, being less happy than they could be is um, when it comes to, we were talking earlier about pluralistic ignorance uh, and the Abilene thing. There is a, there's a study where a, a psychologist went and um, he went to a vegetarian commune uh, where everyone who lived there was a vegetarian and they, um, they asked everyone in individual interviews and letting them know they could, that they could remain anonymous, whether or not they actually were purely vegetarian. And what they found out was that, um, 70% or so of the people who lived there were actually sneaking out, uh, routinely to eat fish, uh, in another location. They'd drive to another town so they wouldn't be found out. <laughs> <laughs> so, That's wild. so, um, it was the, so the majority of the people in this commune actually didn't want to be pure vegetarians. They wanted to be, I guess you'd say pescatarian, or they just wanted to be, they wanted to have, uh -huh. they wanted to have a little bit more range in their life. And, but everyone thought 
who did this, they all believe that they were the only person who felt that way. And so you have yeah. a, a large, so you have 70% of the people in this organization are feeling intense shame because they think that they are failing the hopes and dreams of, of the, of the culture. And if they would just come out and say it, if they could just, you know, deliver some transparency, then everyone would be happy because they'd realize they were already in the organization that they wished they could be in. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. uh, and, and I, well, I saw on the, I'm sorry, go ahead, go ahead. I, I was going to say it's, it's a great example because, you know, we, we sort of, one of the topics that we've been focusing a lot on in the last three years at Google and in the tech industry is diversity. And we, you know, so we've studied it and looked at it and, and, you know, we're doing what we can. We're sort of, we're doing okay. We need to do better. But one of the things we found is we talked to our employees, we surveyed them, did a bunch of studies and, you know, you can identify people as, you know, white, African-American, Hispanic, Asian, what have you. You have your categories. Um, but virtually every single person at the company felt like they were part of a community, regardless of color, creed, you know, sexual orientation, physical ability. But virtually every person also felt like they were unique and distinctive in some way. And nobody was connecting the dots, but the sort of underpinning lesson was similar to the point you're making, like, Everyone was feeling the same thing. Everyone was feeling connected and alone, you know, part of something and different. Uh -huh. At the same time, nobody was talking about it. Yeah, it's crazy. And, and you can, you can, uh, I, you know, some of the literature on that suggests that it can slow down, um, you know, big, big scale social progress where you have, you know, an entire region or entire nation who's already thinking one way, but they are worried that individually, they're the only people who think that thing. And, and you've, um, Google is one of the great companies that is so devoted to transparency that you've, um, naturally without even having to directly attack that issue, you've sort of broken it up in many different places and, you know, just allowing people to know fully who they are and who's next to them and what everybody's feeling at the same time can do so much for, uh, preventing people from, from just, you know, bailing on the company or from, uh, abandoning mm -hmm. projects. It's such a, it's such an easy thing to do. It's weird that a company wouldn't want to be transparent. Um, has Google, has Google always been transparent from the very beginning or was that another decision that you had to say, okay, we, we need to start doing this. Um, for a lot of things we were. So, you know, when the company had 50 employees was when we started doing our TGIF, which is our weekly kind of all employee, all hands meeting. It's 30 minutes of Larry and Sergey kind of saying, here's what's happened in the last week, and then 30 minutes of Q&A about literally any topic you can imagine, ranging from, you know, is our policy on, you know, whatever issue, good or evil, all the way down to, you know, can, can we have more healthy food in the micro kitchen or, you know, can we have different chairs or, I mean, it's the whole gamut. Um, but on the people side, um, we haven't actually always been transparent, um, and we sort of expanded that as well. Um, and so, for example, the way we design our compensation systems, and we don't, we don't uh, publish compensation information internally. You know, employees actually legally, a company's not allowed to interfere with whether or not employees want to talk about or share their compensation. But we're not one of these companies where, you know, everyone's pay is public inside the company. But what we do do is we at some point, probably seven or eight years ago, when we were redesigning our pay systems, we sort of said, okay, why don't we get a group of employees, Googlers, as they call themselves, mm -hmm. and we'll take a data set 
of everyone in the company, their performance history, their compensation, all their details will anonymize it so you can't tell who's who. And why don't we let them play with the data and see what looks like a fair outcome in terms of how you design the pay curves, in terms of, you know, when does the bonus curve get really steep versus when is it flat? And what we found is it was actually really helpful, not just because the content of their contribution was helpful, but because, you know, when we rolled out the new system, what would happen is some random employee would say, well, I don't understand this. And one of these people we had involved would kind of jump in the conversation because this was mainly happening online. And they'd say, well, actually, here's why we did it and here's how it works. And so it didn't become, here's the people operations team or management telling you how it's going to be. It became, you know, people across the company explaining, well, here's how we balance these competing interests of communality and social justice and, you know, having a wide distribution of pay at the same time. And here was the rationale. And we considered that idea, but we rejected it for the following reason. And it was amazing because then it became owned by the folks in the company rather than, you know, this bureaucratic management tool. Mm -hmm. It's, it's so cool. And believe me, I, I, you know, I expected to read this book and think, um, and you know, just, there's so many books that talk about organizational practices, but, um, and I had no idea going in that there was going to be so much focus on, um, social sciences, psychology, biases, and, and elimination of those things and working around the way people really are and, and taking people as they are and trying to improve human, uh, you know, try to, to uh, engage with human um, behavior in a realistic way. I was really surprised to see all that. And one thing that, that came to mind, and I think I've heard this um, mentioned in other places, and I and I'm really wanted, I always wanted to ask someone who was, um, who had a lot of... Uh, uh, influence at Google. How does Google as a company, which seems, you know, so fixated on evidence and data, which is all great. Um, how does that same, um, culture also encourage, encourage and maintain things like, um, art, artistic, uh, notions and beauty and elegance and, and passion. How do, how does a company so fixated on data also, encourage that aspect of the human condition within the culture, things that are less quantifiable. Yeah. I think in part that comes from just giving people freedom mm -hmm. because we're fundamentally, I mean, you know, I, I was in Europe last week and in Europe, um, people are much less excited about Google than, than, you know, in the U S and there were a lot of questions about, you know, what's going on with, you know, taxes and the international tax regime and, you know, the European commission. And there's just a lot of issues and, and a lot of skepticism about the company. Um, and, you know, reasonable people can have different perspectives on, on issues like that. Um, but what I was, what I kept reminding folks is, you know, look, it's not, yes, it's Google, it's a corporation, but it's run by just a bunch of people. And, you know, for most of us, myself included, these are the biggest jobs we've ever had in our lives. And, you know, we're just doing our best and, you know, it's kind of no excuse. It's not dodging responsibility because ultimately we are responsible. But it's a bunch of people just trying to, you know, make information available and build good products and, you know, have fewer people killed, you know, in auto accidents. And and um, when you remember that, you realize, oh, wait, actually, there are people who are painters and dancers and ballerinas and people who love design and who focus on this. So we have a bunch of Googlers who just, you know, they teach class on this stuff just because they're free to, and they care about it. And a lot of people are interested in it. Mm -hmm. um, meditations become this whole thing inside the company. And it's been kind of a grassroots thing, but you know, even I now start my staff meetings every week with two minutes of meditation. Um, 
because it turns out the science shows if you do that, you make better decisions and sort of, you know, there's all kinds of goodness that comes from it. Um, But we also probably four or five years ago got much more serious about design. Uh, We sort of had a credo of we wanted design for expert users. And we started talking about beauty and elegance. And in engineering, there's always a sense of engineering code, computer code needs to be elegant. And in mathematics, there's this notion of elegance. And we started talking about that in terms of how products look and feel. And, you know, quite frankly, we're kind of late to the game. Um, And even if you're not an artist or a creative person, or I mean, I think everyone's a little creative at least, um, that spark exists in all of us. Um, But you sort of like dealing with stuff that is beautiful. Like you, you know, it's, it's like the old line, you know it when you see it. And I think we're getting better at it. Um, but the fundamental source of it comes from giving people freedom to try new things and then actually honestly listening a little bit more to what our users are saying and how they're reacting and saying, oh, okay, this, this needs to be more beautiful. It needs to be more elegant. Mm-hmm. It's so tough because I don't think, you know, there's no, we can't even agree. And even as a culture, we can't agree as a species as what art even is or what, you know, uh, these are such slippery fish. Uh, but, I love the idea of a company that is, is, um, it feel that feels like this is still worth pursuing in whatever way we can. And I think that's so cool. Um, and it, all that comes across in the book. Like you really did a great job of, um, of there's so, like, there's an example every, like within every four paragraphs, you're presented with a new bit of information and, and, and you're like, Oh my God, there's so much in this book, but, but you do tie it all together. <laughs> you do tie it all together and you really do paint a great picture of the overall, um, atmosphere and sort of like the headspace of what it's like to be fully invested in trying to improve the world. And, the, and I think that's, um, it's hard to do that in a book and you did a great job with that. Um, Thank you. The, um, before we go, I wanted to ask one last, uh, I wanted to ask this earlier. I just don't want to miss it. And, um, there's, there's a couple of things that you say in the book that, that when you first read it, you're like, uh, what, how does that, how's that even <laughs> like that's And one of those things that made me like, I was like, well, I guess I have to read this whole chapter now is, um, you said, uh, <laughs> you said, um, at Google, you want to take away as much power from managers as you can. Um, so what are some ways that you've done that and what were the direct benefits of those approaches? So the, the biggest ways we do that is um, if you're a manager at Google, you are not able to pick who you hire. So you can't, you know, you can't hire your own administrative assistant. You can't hire someone on your team. You don't have that authority. Uh, you can't decide unilaterally to fire somebody. You can't decide who to promote. You can't decide even what somebody's pay outcome is going to be without review or some kind of, you know, subsequent kind of test basically to make sure that it's a fair and just outcome. Um, so we do all these things because, you know, Eric Schmidt, he was, when he was our CEO, when we first started thinking about, you know, we probably had about 10 or 15,000 people at the time. And he kind of said, okay, now is the time we should start thinking about actually developing some training programs. Um, and uh, he, we was trying to push us to think about, you know, what can we say about our values, about how we think about leadership that is distinct to the company? Because everybody says, oh, leadership matters, you know, managers take care. And he, he came up with as an illustration, the job of a manager is to serve the team. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, there's so much power dynamic between managers and employees. You know, I want my boss to think I'm good. I want my boss to be happy. I want to be helpful to my boss. Um, 
And then, as you said earlier, you know, you walk out of the meeting going like, oh, I can't believe we did that. <laughs> right. um, and the reason people don't speak up, one of the reasons is they're worried. You know, am I going to get a lower performance rating? Is this going to affect my raise or my bonus? Am I going to, you know, lose status in the eyes of my boss or the people around me? So if you take all that authority and power away from a manager and new people we hire, new managers we hire hate this. Like it's one of the hardest things to transition into. Um, What you're left with is how can I help these people? How can I win their loyalty? How can I make them better and get them to work better together? And then we actually can do some pretty great things. And you do, you, you, you take such small measures and big measures. Like you have no symbols of status or power, or very few symbols of those things, uh, really focusing on what a title means and how to, how a title should be, uh, presented or even spelled sometimes, um, benefits and, and, uh, the, like earlier you talked about the hierarchy and how to, uh, attack our notions of hierarchy. You, you even write in the, you're in the book concerning, hierarchy and reminding people about their value, you say, uh, quote, otherwise, if you don't do that, otherwise human nature reasserts itself. And I really took away that Google actively battles certain aspects of human nature and then actively tries to enhance other aspects to, you know, make life happier and better and more effective. And it's, um, it's really, really cool. And I, I can't recommend this book enough to anyone who has, uh, any power or control within an organization or just uh, wants to hand this to your boss or to your manager and say, look, it's <laughs> because it would, what it amounts to is Google has been spending a lot, has spent a lot of time and just correct me if I'm wrong on this, but um, I mean, it's like you can read all this research coming from all these different places in academia, but here's an organization who never stops researching itself. And now you've, you're offering that, up to people saying, Hey, maybe you want to use this. You could, you, you, could, you don't have to do everything that we did, but I bet if you did a lot of it, it would help. And, uh, it's really awesome that you put together a book like that. And that, and that Google has, um, and even in this interview, um, the company has been very helpful in trying to get this message out and trying to make this interview work. So I just think it's really, it's really great and refreshing to see, um, to see an organization so devoted to trying to improve the world in some way. And it's just awesome. So I really thank you for all that. Um, well, I, if if I can say too though, yeah, it's of a similar vein to kind of the work you do and some of these other folks you've mentioned, like Daniel Kahneman and all these other folks. The self awareness is such a gift, right? And you know, all we're trying to do, I mean, I setting Google aside, like I personally believe, like the better you know yourself, the better you're aware. Like we're all human, we all make mistakes, we're all biased, we we make have bad judgment, or we're just you know the way we're built. But as long as you're aware of it maybe you can navigate the world a little bit better. Maybe you'd be a little bit happier, or at least you understand, you know, why you do certain things and not others. And that seems like such a like wonderful thing to know about yourself and about the people around you. Um, yeah, so, yeah. I mean, I, I want to say thank you to you because like you, you get this stuff out there all the time and it's so important that people understand and appreciate and I'm preaching literally, I get well figuratively the choir here, but <laughs> yeah. the, um, you know, the Greek chorus, perhaps. Um, but it's just such an important thing. And, uh, you know, thanks for the opportunity. And I'm grateful for the work you do and that your listeners take an interest in, you know, forget about my book, but the the kind of stuff you talk about, because it's really transformative. I think it is. I, I Thank you so much. And I agree with that, because I, I just, um, this this is a whole, I you can see it seeping into areas of the zeitgeist or the, um, the, the culture at large, this, uh, and I, I forget who said it. Um, I was at a conference once where they talked about this was the, the new anthropology, like a new understanding of people is this 
really getting a, a grasp of, um, uh, you know, our foibles and our biases and everything. And it's, um, it's, that's, that's why reading the book was so refreshing to be like, Oh my God, Google's doing this. Like, okay, who, let's get Comcast to do this and let's get Walmart, <laughs> let's get Walmart to do this. Uh, and let's move the, you know, it's, uh, that was, so it, it's made me smile. It's actually given me this like, um, optimistic outlook. I dig it. Um, so if people want, want other than the book, uh, if people wanted to like keep up with what you're doing or follow the, your aspect of the organization, is there a way that people could just get on the internet and sort of, um, you know, wade into all of that? Is there a way they can find you? Yeah. Um, two ways are, um, so I, I put out stuff on uh, LinkedIn and Twitter periodically, uh, LinkedIn sort of more long form stuff. Um, so you can just find me by my name on LinkedIn or on Twitter. It's, um, I think Laszlo Bach 2718. And, um, but more generally we post a bunch of stuff on the Google blog. There's an official Google blog. Um, and you know, we're kind of always putting stuff up there. So if people want to take a look at that as well, they're, they're free to, um, and that's, that's a good way to kind of, you know, keep hearing more about what we're up to. All right. Well, thank you so much for, Oh, I should also mention, and, and of course, I, I should also mention, and of course, Google plus. <laughs> yes, of course. Google plus. I, I actively drop, uh, animated GIFs in there all the time or GIFs. I don't care how, however you pronounce it. I drop them in there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thank you so much. That's a real pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. On each episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast, we read a piece of self-delusion news or a scientific study that's in the realm of self-delusion, and then we talk about it right before I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or a reader. And in this episode, both the cookie and the story came from the same person. More about that in a second. And you can send those things, by the way, stories or cookies to david at youarenotsosmart.com. Okay, so the story is this. This comes out of the New York Times. The headline is, Witness accounts in Midtown Hammer Attack show the power of false memory. The story came out May 14th, 2015. It's written by Jim Dwyer. And what the story is about is not only do the police depend on eyewitness testimony, not only do the courts depend on it, but so do reporters. And in this incident, someone was using a hammer to attack people and someone was shot and the police were involved. This is sort of what the, the, uh, the reporters on the scene knew. So they go around interviewing people. One man says to the reporters, this is Anthony O'Grady, who was standing and saw the whole thing. He says he heard a ruckus, he heard some shouting, and then he saw a police officer chase a man into the street and shoot him down. Now, another person said that she was riding her bicycle and she saw the incident and she saw someone who was handcuffed on the ground get shot by police. Now, the first person said that he believed that what it looked like was that the man was trying to get away from the police officers and then they shot him. And the other person said that they saw someone who was helpless and defenseless get shot by police. Here's the thing though. Neither one of these people saw that at all. Now they did see the incident. They do have a vivid memory of it and they do see that in their mind when they replay the memory. They are actually telling you something that they 100% believe is true, but it is absolutely not true. And these people have no malicious content. The reporter actually writes that, that these people were not being intentionally uh, malicious or false. 
It's just that memory is absolutely terrible. Memory is something that nothing should be based on. <laughs> memory is so fallible and malleable and easily misconstrued and affected by our surroundings that eyewitness testimony can't even be depended upon when it comes to reporters telling stories about things that happened because they have the actual video of the of what happened. There's a surveillance videotape that shows the entire incident. And in it, you can see it in the story, by the way, uh, this guy just out of nowhere pulls out a hammer and tries to hit a police officer in the head with it. There's two police officers standing on the street and out of nowhere, this guy starts to attack them. And he comes very close. He's swinging it all over the place and he comes really close to hitting one of them. But one of the officers pulls out a gun and right before his partner is hit, he shoots the guy one time. The guy falls to the ground. The other officer falls to the ground. They get up and then they go through the whole process of calling in backup, calling in medical, handcuffing the person and on it goes. So what this really shows is yet another example of it's not so much that our memory is so bad and it's so embellished and so immediately embellished. It's that we believe that it's not any of those things. That's the problem. It's that meta part of it. Okay. The fact that we have this undeserved confidence, not only in the fact that we believe our, our eyes catch everything that happens in front of them, but that we believe we attend to all the important details that happen in front of our eyes. And it's all recorded in perfect detail one-to-one. And then we believe that that memory of what we saw is perfect, non-degradable, and sort of basically what you would get if our eyes had been lenses on a video camera and it all been recorded to a hard drive or to a tape or something. None of that, of course, is true. There's so much scientific evidence to show that we don't catch everything that happens in front of us. And then even then, we only attend to a very small portion of the total visual field And even what we attend to is not laid down in perfect detail in our memory. And the second that we have a memory inside of our mind, it begins to degrade and get added to and some parts subtracted from it to to be a memory that's more in line with our beliefs and our ideologies. And then gets affected by our environment, by conversations, by more information. The whole thing is just a, a big mess. And it's odd that we've built any institutional value that depends on eyewitness testimony. And it's true, of course, eyewitness testimony is still a big part of the courts. It's also a big part of investigations by the police. And it's a big part of reporting. And it's a really cool story. It's not very long. You can knock it out in like a minute and a half. I recommend it. It's witness accounts in Midtown Hammer Attack show the power of false memory. And it's yet another example of how quickly this can happen and how weird it can be. These are really good people who did not mean to... uh, you know, lead the reporters astray. And yet they did because of their ignorance of their own ignorance. Okay. So who sent this in? Well, the person that sent this in the story and the cookie would like to give a big shout out to her husband, Aaron Rosekind, Aaron Rosekind, the master roboticist, Dr. Robotnik, Aaron Rosekind, your wife, Madeline, Maddie to her friends. She sent in this recipe, Maddie, says that you love cookies and you love the podcast, that you've read the books, you're going to get a signed copy of the book. Oh my God. And I'm going to eat this cookie that you sent in. And you're, you're prof- you guys are professional scientists and cookie lovers. I don't know what to say. It sounds like the coolest couple ever. And boy, is your wife awesome because 
Uh, we sent a couple emails back and forth. She planned this whole thing out. And I am proud to say that not only is that story cool, great story to pick out of the world, but so are these cookies. Oh my God. I can't tell you how much I love these cookies. I'm going to attempt it here in a moment, but they're so the idea behind these cookies is this. What if every bite of a cookie was completely different than the next? What if each time you bit in the cookie, it was simply a random sorting experiment of what you may or may not get? You can't decide. One bite will not tell you what kind of cookie this is. It will require repeated experimentation to understand its very nature. And even then, you might be wrong. We could ask six different people. They might all tell us something different. How do we determine what kind of cookie it is? Well, first of all, let's go through the ingredients. It's got flour and baking soda and salt and cinnamon and softened sugar and brown sugar and vanilla extract and oats. But most importantly, every kind of chip you can think of. Butterscotch chips, semi-sweet chocolate chips, white chocolate chips, cinnamon chips. All the chips that we had in the house went in this thing. So it's basically a oatmeal cookie. But because it has every chip that you can imagine, every bite is going to be a different mix of flavor. So Aaron calls these cookies wife cookies and that he insists that makes them better than all others. That is what Maddie told me. I am going to tell you that this is true. I am a connoisseur of wife cookies. Amanda McCraney makes all of the cookies on the show and she loves doing it. And she's always telling other people she, and if you want to know more about this, Maddie and uh, Aaron, this entire batch of cookies we sent, uh, we took it over to our, local academic library where I get all of my uh, papers for my research and books and stuff. And we gave them all the cookies and it was, a, there was a bit, they were a huge hit. Everything was a huge hit. So let's taste these cookies right now. Let's find out what happens when you eat a cookie made with love. Also remember these two people, Aaron Rosekind and Madeline Radlauer, they've been married for one year Monday, May 18th was their anniversary. This is part of that whole deal. I'm so happy to be part of this. Let's try it out. Here we go. Oh. <laughs> Biting the cookie. Mm. That's my delicious alarm. Mm. <laughs> okay. What does it taste like? Butterscotch. I would tell you that's a butterscotch cookie right now, but I don't know. Is it? Let's experiment further. Second bite. No, wait. It's a chocolate chip cookie. What is happening? Hmm. Bite three. Oh, no, no, no. White chocolate chip. That's what this is. Ah, uh, why? How? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a tongue kaleidoscope of wonder. Every bite different. Every bite delicious. So fantastic. Wife cookies. Every bite different, every bite delicious. And these are great cookies to be sent in by scientists, to be made and designed by a scientist couple because you don't know what kind of cookie it is just from a random sample. Offer this to six different people, get six, di- six different answers. What kind of cookie is this? Chocolate chip, white chocolate, cinnamon, I don't know, butterscotch. No one can agree. What is it? Oh, science must answer this question. I'll try it. First bite, wait. Maybe maybe this guy's right. No, no, maybe she's right. Oh, I don't know what's happening. This is going to require a lot of bites. This is going to require a lot of tasting to get to the center of this. Oh, wait. It was a million different cookies from the very beginning. This is such a cool cookie. I recommend you make it. And if you want to send cookies in to me, send them into David 
at youarenotsosmart.com. Let me say thank you right now to Madeline. You are such a cool person, such a great wife. Uh, Aaron, you're so lucky. You're both uh, scientists. You both love cookies. You both listen to the show. And now a signed copy of You Are Not So Smart is headed to your house. And also let me mention, Maddie says in her email that this is their one-year anniversary. Monday, May 18th was the one-year anniversary. And this is sort of part of all of that. Thank you so much. The library thanks you. I thank you. Amanda thanks you. The world, I believe, after they cook these, they will also thank you. So add that to your resume. Robotics, chemistry, and cookie experimentation. Awesome. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Head to boingboing.net for more great podcasts like this one and head to youarenotsosmart.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes to listen to all the previous episodes of this podcast. You can find links to everything that I talked about today at youarenotsosmart.com and you can learn more about both of my books right there at that same website. Send your cookie recipes to David at youarenotsosmart.com. If I bake your cookie, I'll send you a signed copy. And if you follow You Are Not So Smart on Facebook, Twitter, or Google+, you'll get more information about everything. You'll get updates when new shows come out. And uh, sometimes I interact. We get questions going. We talk about uh, new stuff that's happening in the world of uh, You Are Not So Smart and further books and further projects. On Twitter, it's at NotSmartBlog. I'm at David McRaney. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. The music beds are by Banjo Apocalypse. Again, we would like to thank our sponsor, Loot Crate, the subscription box for the geek, gamer, and or nerd in all of us. For less than $20 a month, you get six to eight items of gamer and pop culture license, gear, apparel, collectibles, unique one-of-a-kind items, and more. It's so cool. This is a great gift for you, for me, for a loved one. I think you will dig it. Make sure you head to lootcrate.com smart and enter the code SMART to save $3 on your subscription. It's fantastic. Remember, you have only until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate. And when the cutoff happens, that is it. It is over. So go to lootcrate.com slash SMART and enter the code SMART to save $3 on your new subscription today.